casting was maybe one year, and we were looking all around Mexico. It was we have armies of casting crews go, going through little villages in Oaxaca, a southern state in Mexico, and we met with Jalitza in this town called Tlaxiaco, and and it, oh, I was so lucky to have met here. No, ce que je disais, oui, moi, Time has come. Catherine Bigelow! This and some of the other nice things that have happened to me in the last couple of days may turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruin my whole life. Spoil? <laughs> Did he spoil me? No. I remember quite clearly it was 1946 and I was four years old. My mother took me to see King Vidor's Duel in the Sun. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. Babel, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Al film italiano Deserto Rosso di Michelangelo. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another have done it, so you do the math. Three artists in the presentation of the Palm Door. Adele, Leah, and Abdel Afid Kenji. Hi everybody, it's B here and you're joining us for episode 56 of the Filmotomy podcast. And on this episode, we're going to go through our top 10 lists of 2018. So joining me today, I've got uh, four lovely people from Filmotomy. Uh, first up, I've got Audrey. Hello. Jonathan. Hello, everyone. Doug. Hello. Hi, everyone. Jeremy joining me today. Hello. I forgot Hello. your name there. Sorry. Oh. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, that's <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm excited to hear all of your picks. So let's get stuck in. So without any further ado, let's get going. So Audrey, what's at your number 10? I'm glad you asked. My number 10 spot um, is El Angel, which is an Argentinian um, movie about a teenage boy who's not an angel. He is, in fact, a serial killer. And uh, I just really liked it. Luis Ortega's the director and his visual style is so stylish and original and I look forward to seeing what he does in the future. So I, I really enjoyed it. And that's why it's my 10 spot. That's a great pick. Thanks, Audrey. And yeah, uh, let's go with mine. It's first reformed for the 10 spot, uh, written and directed by Porsche. Uh, Schrider from uh, Taxi Driver, uh, starring Ethan Hawke, uh, who plays a pastor of a small church uh, whose life sort of spirals out of control after meeting a mentally unstable environmental activist and um, the activist's uh, pregnant wife. And uh, yeah, I quite like this film. I it would have it a bit higher, but I, I don't know. It just felt a little, it's a little bit of a downer film. Ends kind of in a strange way, but it's it's got some beautiful moments in it. Uh, Doug, what's that your top 10 spot? Uh, so number 10, number 10 on my top 10 list, I usually reserve for uh, a blockbuster or a, you know, action movie or a Marvel movie, whatever. Just something that's, a, you know, 
not not necessarily artistically great, but I'm I'm pleased to say this year that I can actually give it to something that is actually quite artistically great, which is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I gotta get my pants. Wait, why is the voice in my head so loud? Oh, are you okay? I'm Miles. I'm Gwanda. Wait, your name is Gwanda? Yes, it's African. I'm South African. Uh, no accent, though, because I was raised here. Hey. Okay, then. Uh, I'll see you around. See you. It was so original, and the animation is so fresh and amazing, and the the voice cast is wonderful, and it's a completely different Spider-Man story. It's, it's not nothing we've seen before because it doesn't focus on Peter Parker. It focuses on someone else, and it was just really refreshing, and I had such a an amazing time watching it and enjoying it, and, yeah, that's my number 10. Jonathan, uh, let's go with you. All right, well, my number 10, again, usually, like, Dog, I usually leave it for, you know, a, kind of a bigger blockbuster, but mine would be a little bit higher this year, which is a surprise, but my number 10 is uh, Heredit- Hereditary uh, from first-time director Ari Aster. features uh, Tony Collette as a mother who, um, <clears throat> her, her, grandma, her secret grandmother just died, and after her death, there have been strange happenings going around her life and in her house. The son is just kind of very much at odds with her. And then all sorts of strange, strange stuff going up, happening. And it's perhaps Tony Collette's best performance I've seen to date. And it's it, it's not scary per se, it's, but it is deeply, deeply unsettling from the, from the first, from the opening shot where it's just a panning uh, zoom in shot of what we believe is a house, but really it's one of her miniatures. Yeah. To right up until the end, where uh, well, I don't want to spoil it. It's just really, really messed up. Jeremy, what is at your ten spot? So my number ten uh, is is uh, is a comedy that came out uh, back in early March, I think. Uh, it's called Game Night, and uh, it's a, the film that starred uh, Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams. So what? It's over. What are they gonna try to stop us? Let's go. Yeah, probably. That's that's why I brought this. Jesus Christ, honey, where'd you get a gun? No, no, that's the fake gun from Brooks's fight. Oh yeah. Boy, that looks real. Yeah, you know, yeah. Brooks never spares any expense. Yeah, that's true. Okay, follow my lead, huh? Why we do? Lead. Any of you fucking pricks move, and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. Very nice, honey. Pulp Fiction, anybody? Right? It's a classic. We love films. Okay. What's uh, they play a couple well, that, like that, the that they host oh, that these these oh, weekly you know, game nights with their friends, and then Jason Braitman's brother comes one. Uh, his estranged brother comes, and then uh, with this new kind of role-playing game that that kind of goes that that kind of takes this this new twist, where suddenly that uh, suddenly that these these people come and take their brother away. They think it's all part of the game, but uh, it might be real. Um, so it's just kind of like this really. Uh, I felt like this well-constructed comedy that uh that i was kind of missing for a long time like i really love like just comedies that were uh that just have like a really strong script and really strong performances 
And I, I basically was just, I've, I never laughed so harder in a movie this year. So it was really unexpected, and I was laughing all the way through it. And I, just, just some moments where, oh my god, I was just like nearly wetting myself. It was, so, it was just, <laughs> it was just. Uh, I'm just looking at my list, and I've got really no comedy, so, so I'm just a miserable <laughs> person. Um, so, well. Loving those top te- uh, those tens. That's great. Um, let's move on quickly to our number nines. Uh, Audrey, my number nine is First Man. Um, I am enraged at the world on a daily basis, but specifically because um, First Man did not get the reception that I think it deserved. I I really was so pleasantly surprised by the fact that it it had the ability to surprise me because I think we think of all these NASA movies coming out and it's like, yeah, we know they land on the moon. It's famous, but um, they brought so much drama to it and um, centering it around Neil Armstrong and um, his grief at losing his daughter, I think is uh, an incredible choice and something that really grounds the film and makes it more than just a guy landing on the moon. And I think also the idea that NASA, like, was did not know what they were doing and they were just like building spaceships out of tin foil and just launching them up to see what would happen and you know because they were successful in the end spoiler alert um we kind of think like oh it was pretty safe right like no it was not safe it was an incredibly stupid foolhardy thing to put yourself through but um they did it anyway and uh i think that's really really interesting angle of like the NASA historical films that don't really get covered as much. Okay, my number nine is a film called A Prayer Before Dawn. Um, it's a really great film um, based on a true story of an English boxer who was sent to jail in one of Thailand's most notorious prisons. Uh, so in order to get his freedom, he has to sort of join the Thai um, kickboxing a tournament uh, which is run by the prison and it's just his sort of struggle throughout um, that that pre- prison sentence that he, he's got and what goes on and being a stranger and, and not really knowing the language or the customs and the, the film's very violent um, it doesn't really shy away from what it shows on screen um, it is really hard to watch in certain scenes but um, Joe Cole, uh, who is the main um, actor, is amazing and his performance is wonderful. And it's a film where it's not heavy on dialogue, there's not very much dialogue. It's, m- it's more about the visuals and, and the, 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 the mise-en-scene. So it's a very um, interesting film. Um, so, Doug, what's at your number nine spot? Just looking at my top ten, I'm like, I wish I could have put this higher, but... Um... <laughs> Uh, my number nine is Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, which is getting the award season uh, kudos it deserves for Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, who are such a terrific duo combination in this movie. They're both so fantastic. Uh, you know, I think a lot, of, a lot of people are saying this is Melissa McCarthy's sort of departure role, that it's a, it's a more dramatic role. And, and, and it, it is. Inherently, it is a dramatic role, but she... She still brings some of her natural comedy into it, but she's playing a very unlikable, curmudgeon kind of character who's sort of cantankerous and 
you know, doesn't interact well with people. But you, you in, in McCarthy's hands, you still can't help but love this character. She's, she's so endearing and um, her connection to Richard E. Grant's character is just, it's such a beautiful thing to watch because they're both such polar opposites and yet they find this sort of strange friendship over this bizarre plan to forge letters from celebrities and 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 sign their names and that that she's a writer and this is her outlet because nobody wants to read her books anymore so she finds another way to write under the guise of other people's names and it's all based on a true story and it's 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 uh actually really beautifully directed as well i wish um the director i my name her name escapes me mariel something hello i think is her name, and I, I've seen her sort of show up on a couple of the critics' lists, which is nice, and I, I wish there was more Oscar talk about her getting a Best Director nomination, but I know the field is obviously quite quite tough this year. But um, I really, 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 really hope Richard E. Grant can continue his role onto uh, Oscar night, unlike Willem Dafoe last year, who followed a very similar path of, you know, taking all the critics' prizes and then... He fell over at Golden Globes and never recovered. So I really, really hope that doesn't happen with Richard E. Grant because he absolutely deserves to win Best Supporting Actor. Jeremy, what is at your number nine spot? Uh, Let the Sunshine In. French film is directed by Claire Denis. Juliette Binoche plays this uh, sort of middle-aged uh, artist who is kind of going through kind of like this, this, love, this crisis of love in her life that... She has, like, various relationships that she goes through. And it's just, the film is just sort of like that exploration of wanting to find love and if love actually exists. At least at least that's what I, I kind of took from it. It was beautifully shot. Like, it has really, uh, I, I just thought it was really warm colors. And then Juliette Binoche, just, who is just one of my favorite actresses uh, of all time, just exudes like this warmth. Claire Denis just kind of films her in such it's al- it's almost like a love letter to her. The film the whole film just seems like a big love letter. And Jonathan, number nine for you was My number nine is a movie that few people got to see and it's a shame because it's just very beautifully made. It's small but it packs a it packs a huge punch. It's called Leave No Trace, and this is by director co-writer Deborah Granick. And she's fast becoming one of my favorite filmmakers because she... I love how she takes... how, how, how she focuses her gaze on that the, forgot, the forgotten side of, Amer- of our American lives. People who are maybe, you know, middle, maybe middle class somewhere in rural America or kind of on the, outs- on the outskirts trying to survive in this one there's a guy named uh will uh played by uh ben croft ben Ben foster yes thank you (laughs) and she has a daughter uh uh, played by thomas and mckenzie they live out in the forest of uh oregon in a natural natural reserve uh, wildlife park the father has uh is a soldier who has ptsd he struggles to just you know, connect with the uh, regular society. One day, the park ranger uh, spots them, and they're taken into t- into uh, protective services and forced to live on uh, live out live in a rural uh, organ. 
because they can't, because you can't live on a public you can't live on public land, and the ending is rather heartbreaking uh, yeah. for various reasons. It's my pick for uh, later on in my list to see I'm not alone in, in the love for that movie. Uh, so moving on, so number eight, <laughs> Audrey, what's that? Your number eight. My number eight is Damsel, which is uh, Robert Pattinson and Mia Wasikowska, and it's um, this kind of Western comedy where our hero is off to rescue his beloved, um, you know, who's been kidnapped by this, um, you know, horrible, horrible man, except she hasn't, and um, I think it's just a really, really fun the the narrative turns on a dime in terms of like what your expectations are about the characters and how easily it is for people especially men to um misread certain situations and like think that their people are giving them hints or that there's you know these social misreading social cues and um so i think it's a really fun exploration of like that kind of dynamic in male and female relationships played out in this kind of western comedy thank you audrey for that um, moving on to mine, um, Half the Picture, the documentary. My number eight, uh, I won't really talk about it much on here, but I will encourage people to go to filmotomy.com where you can see my interview with uh, the film's director, Amy uh, Adron. Um, so that's mm. me plugging my work in. Uh, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Shameless plug-in. Doug, uh, what's that? your number eight? My number eight. So I think I wanted to put something on my top ten that was just, you know, a lot of these movies are quite dark and depressing and they're, 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 you know, there's a place for that kind of cinema. But I wanted to just highlight something that I found incredibly joyous, uplifting, and just so, so... A uh, happy, a happy film, and that's Mary Poppins Returns. It, you know, I, I was a huge, huge fan of the original, so I was in, extremely anxious about seeing this film. I just, uh, Emily Blunt is just, she is fantastic. She makes the role her own. She's, she's not doing a Julie Andrews impersonation. She really is creating something with the same spirit, but uh, something completely different. And the songs are fantastic. Uh, the production design, the costume design, it looks amazing. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is just so infectiously happy and his smile is just so contagious. Like, it's just, it's such a beautiful film. And I'm a little disappointed that it's it's getting a, sort of a little bit lower score on Rotten Tomatoes than I was hoping for, but there are... A lot of people out there who absolutely love this film as much as I did, which makes me very happy. Um, you know, it's the perfect time for something like this. It's it's the you know the the real joyous cinema that the world really needs right now. So that yeah, it's the perfect film for for this holiday season. That's great. I love hearing you talk about it, Doug. You just make it makes me feel really warm inside. Oh, <laughs> go on about <laughs> Jeremy. What it was uh, at your number eight this year. Um, so my number eight, uh, which I think you mentioned earlier, B, is First Reformed. It was exploring the duality between hope and despair. For, like, I really just loved the, the script of it and Ethan Hawke's performance. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I loved the, the look of the film and... Just what it was kind of trying to say about this this balance, having this balance of 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 wanting to believe in something, but also having this like this very real 
uh, almost like apocalyptic kind of feel uh, in the world today and, and, uh, and, and what, what to do about it and, and how it, how Paul Schrader really sort of um, kind of goes back to his taxi driver roots with, with the character that Ethan Hawke plays with how he kind of goes into this despairing uh, mode and, and everything. So yeah, I, I really liked it. So, so Jonathan, uh, what's at your number eight spot? The favorite. I, I was expecting a costume drama, uh, really good performances, great, lavish design, costumes, stuff like that. And for the most part, it's it, it does have those elements, but I wasn't expecting it to be that damn funny <laughs> or that sharp. <laughs> I, I, Rachel Weisz, who I don't think we, we haven't seen in a while, it gives probably her best performance since The Constant Gardener. Uh, Emma Stone has never been better, and Olivia Coleman just kind of breaks your heart as 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 the queen. We're at number seven now, and it's Audrey. Yeah, my number seven pick is The Guilty, which is a Danish thriller, and um, it's an amazingly well-made movie because it's an action-packed thriller, but it all takes place in one room, and all you're ever doing is listening to one guy, like hear the drama and kind of because he's um he's an emergency services um like phone call router person and um all this crazy stuff is happening on the other end of the line and you never actually see any of it but just the way that you're experiencing him experience it is incredibly dramatic and um just the way that they're utilizing this one space and um, it's, it's so tightly packed and so restrained, but it's um, incredibly intense. And I just loved it. Like it's not normally my type of thing, like these kinds of, I don't know, like action policey movies, but this was incredible. So I recommend everyone watch it. It's really good. A film that I have watched this year. Um, and my number seven pick is Roma. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's on other people's, List. I would just say that I, I love this film. Um, I know it's, it sounds like it's pretty low on my list, but there are some really good films that I just couldn't shift around. And what a film! The cinematography is just beautiful from the very sort of opening shot um, to the end. It's just beautiful, and some amazing strong uh, female performances in that film. So. Let's find out from Doug. What's at number seven, Doug? Uh, my number seven is A Star is Born. And I know there's been some backlash around that uh, lately now that it's, you know, steaming towards Best Picture and everybody's looking to bring it down. But um, I I just had such a great time. I think it's the, the soundtrack is fantastic and I, I don't think anyone's going to beat Shallow for Best Original Song, although I could probably make a case for some of the Mary Poppins songs. Um, and you know, Bradley Cooper's in you know, a directorial debut. He, he really makes his mark as someone who understands filmmaking, uh, someone who has a real keen eye for angles and shots and obviously getting great performances out of his cast. Um, you know, Lady Gaga, I, I hope she doesn't beat Glenn Close for best actress. Um, but you know, it, it, it is a it is a great debut performance from her. I know it's not technically her debut, and um, but she 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 is a trained actress, and this this really shouldn't come as a surprise to people that she knows how to act, she knows how to perform. Um, 
her sort of dramatic scenes are great, but she she really comes alive when she does get to sing. Obviously, that's that's where she's comfortable. But and the the two of them together, just from the the moment they meet, they just have such wonderful chemistry. And walked out of that cinema feeling like I'd seen something great. And I and I I have no problem celebrating that, even if other people are now turning their noses up against it. Um, Jeremy, what's your number seven? Um, so I have uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which uh, kind of like Roma, it it, it kind of got its its big premiere on Netflix. So it's uh, it's uh, the new film by the Coen Brothers. It's like this. Uh, it's an anthology of western stories that kind of what I liked about it is uh, to me it was it was just sort of like the the film equivalent of like sitting down. And reading a book of, of of nice short stories, they don't they don't link together, but I like thematically they are similar. The Coens kind of uh, have this obsession in a lot of their films about death and what it what it all means. And and when you dot like a lot, there's a lot of death in this film. Like some of it is humorous, <laughs> some of it is really dark. What I really gravitate towards a lot of the Coen Brothers films is is this this exploration of of uh, of of what death is. I loved all the stories for what they were. Like some of them were kind of shorter than others. Some of them were kind of more profound than others. But I think as a whole, the film really ties together. I think the Coens, I think for me, are like some of the best screenwriters that we have. I love their dialogue. I love that it's it's so rhythmically. Uh, it, it feels like it, it almost feels like music with some of their dialogue going back and forth, and and of course it's shot really well. So great pick. I love that, um, Jonathan. Uh, what's your number seven? Ah, uh, my number seven is First Man, and there's really not much else to add that hasn't already been said uh, or was already said early on except to say that this is a really, really talented filmmaker and it did show that uh, he's not just a two-hit a two-hit film wonder. No, this is a guy who's going to have a long career. This is a guy who has major talent and it's just it was beautifully handled. Uh, the sound editing the sound mixing is, is terrific and it's just, you know, definitely go, go see it. It's it's another great performance by Ryan Gosling, and Claire Foy was spectacular in this film, so... He's okay, Jan. I need you to go home. Fine. Turn the box back on. I'll see what now, I can do. Now, turn the box back on. Now. Well, there's security protocol. Well, I don't give a damn. I've got a dozen cameras on my front lawn, Deke. Do you want me telling them what's going on? Jan, you have to trust us. We've got this under control. No, you we- don't. All these protocols and procedures to make it seem like you have it under control. But you're a bunch of boys making models out of balsa wood. You don't have anything under control. Let's move on. Uh, Audrey, what's that, your number six spot? My number six is Anna and the Apocalypse. Um, if there's anything that everybody should know about me, it's that I love a good zombie Christmas movie. <laughs> zombie Christmas musical, actually. It's so much fun. It just has such a sense of joy and everything feels fresh and it fully commits to both the like high school musical and zombie horror film aspects of itself. Like it doesn't go light on either one. Both are equally compelling and soundtrack's pretty good. 
Um, the entire cast of young adults in it are pretty much unknowns, I would say, and they are all incredible and put in these performances that make you care about them right away, which between the writing and the acting is something that doesn't always happen in movies about teenagers. Anyway, I will just quickly mention my number six. Uh, I think it's probably been talked about quite a lot, and if you haven't really heard about this film, then uh, you should definitely seek it out. But uh, my number six is a documentary by uh, Morgan uh, Neville, um, Won't You Be My Neighbour? All about the uh, children TV host Fred Rogers and uh, his neighbourhood. I just really love this sort of film, um, in terms of I, I didn't really know much about Mr. Rogers um, being from the UK so this was a really sort of eye-opening sort of documentary but it was kind of uh, sweet and I think the overall message of the, the documentary um, Mr. Rogers sort of neighbourhood is sort of you know learning to love yourself and loving others and just having empathy for other people and respecting them and I think this is something that increasingly many people are beginning to sort of forget about I don't know, I just have that general feeling I think we sort of just need uh, to to feel the love and to spread the love and it's just a really well crafted documentary Um, Doug, what's that, your number six? My number six, and it killed me not to put this one higher as well, is Shoplifters. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a fantastic year for foreign films, and I think that that foreign language film category at the Oscars is going to be. I mean, I think we're all under the assumption that Roma is going to win, but there are so many other great films, and this is one of them. Um, it's a very simple simple film, um, but such a powerful powerful story, and it's so, so beautifully beautifully made, and the 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 chemistry between these sort of mashed together characters who make up this sort of pseudo family and doing some very strange things. And they're, they're living in a very strange way, obviously, but there's, there's such beauty in this film. I was so touched by it. And I, I, I don't know what I was expecting. Another one with a bit of a heartbreaking ending and it, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it is very, uh, so I guess a downer ending, but um, yeah, I, I was just amazed by, by this film. It's, it's, it's just, very, very touching and you know, very, very eye-opening to, you know, ways that other you know people live and survive and thrive and yet yet can still find total contentment in living in, in, in situations like this. You know, up until a certain point, this family is perfectly content with the way they live and they're perfectly happy because they have each other and they connect to each other and they, 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 they sort of pull each other through this situation so it's beautiful i love that film so i'm so glad that it's on your list as well Mm -hmm. Uh, moving on jeremy what is at your number six i have black panther this was the first time i think for me it was there it was like a comic book like a marvel movie that was actually about something like like it takes place in like the the world of wakanda and uh and chadwick boseman uh, is taking the mantle of like this Black Panther, and it, it and then there's like a really complex villain with Michael P. Jordan's character. It's a genre movie, like it's a comic book movie, it's an action movie, but I think underneath uh, it it was trying to say something like like I found it to be a very deep film, but also like a very entertaining film. 
obviously a lot of people went and checked it out so i can't so i can't really tell you to like yeah check it out because obviously it it's it was big at the box office but but yeah i i i really thought it was uh, a really great film in its in its own right so Exciting stuff. Um, Jonathan, <laughs> what's your number six? <laughs> Same movie. Oh. Black Panther. <laughs> but, but what, there's, a, there's an interesting tidbit I do want to point out. Um, originally, Ava DeVere was given a chance to direct Black Panther. He, she and Kevin Feige had a conversation and then realized that their visions of this film were kind of different. And then Ryan Coogler was asked... I think he was asked twice, and then the second time he accepted under, under certain conditions. One of them is that he would bring his bring in his own people to uh, do the film. Uh, Rachel Morrison, who, who she he had worked with on Free Fall Station, uh, a costume designer, the editors, all all collaborators from previous uh, efforts from Coogler, and that's why he. He eventually took on, he took on the uh, directing gig, and it paid off dividends because it's somewhat because it is very even though it, it does share continuity with what had happened after uh, Civil War, uh, it's very much in its own set in its own you know, its own small contained universe. So now we're getting to um, our final five. Audrey, what's at your number five spot? My number five is Shoplifters. So we talked about it a little bit. Um, the only thing I'm really going to add is um, when <laughs> the people ask the, the father character, um, didn't you feel bad making them steal? And he says, uh, that was the only thing I knew to teach them. Uh, I didn't have anything else to teach them. That's it. Game over for me. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Sobbing in the theater. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't have anything else to teach them. Like, um, so it's such a good movie. Um, echoing everything else that's been said about shoplifters. My number five is uh, Eighth Grade, uh, which is another film that I cried at. Directed by uh, Bo Burnham, uh, his debut film, and I wasn't really expecting too much um, when going into this film. I was just thinking, oh, okay, it's going to be like this year's Lady Bird or something like that. I thought, oh, I'm not too sure. Um, how are you going to be able to tell this story? Um, but it's a really sort of lovely, sort of interesting observation on what it means to be a teenager and sort of going through that sort of difficult period of your life you know when you're 13 years old and uh it's about this young girl called Kayla who is played by Elsie Fisher who is amazing and she's sort of making her way through the last week of middle school before going up uh to high school and she's very sort of socially awkward but she's just so like just how teenagers are you just sort of want to be popular and you know feeling sort of um awkward about your body and and then being becoming interested in in boys and all that and 
having to deal with an embarrassing father who is played by Josh Hamilton, who's really great in this film. And the, they have a really touching moment towards the end of the movie, which I'm not going to ruin, but just really sweet. And every, there's some really funny moments in it as well. There's moments where you're just like, that is really just like how it is when you're a kid. So uh, that's my number five. Um, Doug, what's at your number five spot? So my number five spot is the favourite, which we've already briefly touched on. Um, yeah, I was just incredibly impressed. The, the screenplay is probably my favourite of the year. I think the dialogue is just amazing. It's so dark and biting and naughty and nasty and there there is one line uh i won't spoil it it has something to do with a tongue and there was an old woman next to me who looked like she'd had a stroke when she heard this line of dialogue (laughs) because it 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 comes at you from nowhere and it's just like bang and that's what this film is it's just like bang after bang like it's just constant constant shocks and surprises and i was just completely in Love's film, like it's very twisted and it's very dark and it's very uh, sort of uh, yeah, it's very naughty. And I think that you don't you don't expect that. It's a very twisted period film in that if you looked at just the poster or you didn't know much about it, you could go in thinking it's just a simple little period film. And um, it's it's a complete flip on its head of this genre and. I mean, the three performances, I, I, there's not much that needs to be said because we keep seeing them, all three of them show up being nominated at every uh, award show for a reason. Yeah, obviously the production design, the costume design are stunning. The direction is great too. There's some really interesting uh, camera uh, angles and choices, some sort of fish fishbowl kind of lenses occasionally and some really fast swoops in on, on the cinematography. It, it's 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 a... Probably his most accessible film so far. I think his other work has been a little absurdist and hard for a lot of people to, to get into. If, if it does somehow end up winning Best Picture, I would, wouldn't be upset about that at all. It absolutely deserves to. Jeremy, what's that, your number five? Uh, Black Klansman, uh, directed by Spike Lee. So, like, I guess for those who don't know, it's a, about a... It's a based on a true story about... Um, uh, an African American cop in the 1970s who uh, infiltrates the the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, along with along with his partner, who is uh, a Jewish a, a Jewish man, and who's uh, so uh, he um, he pretends to be like a white racist over the phone uh, to fool the KKK, and then Adam Driver is the sort of the face of of John David Washington, so he he's the he's the he's the actual guy who goes in to 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 infiltrate them. I found this like not only just a very entertaining movie, like it's a social commentary movie, uh, it's a satirical movie. Um, Spike Lee just balances a lot of different tones in this film. I know like some people criticized it for being a little like a mishmash of different of different. Tones, but I think he balances it really, really well. Um, it's, it's, it's in a lot of parts. It's, it's really, it's darkly funny, um, and it's just like a searing, angry film in a lot of ways. Like the last, the last 
10, five, 10 minutes of this film, which where Spike Lee kind of puts us into contemporary times, which is just a gut punch. Uh, watching it uh, at the very end, I couldn't leave my seat. And I was just, like, astounded by it. But, uh, yeah, I know I'm Canadian, but, like, it's just, like, all the politics that are going on. It just really hit me. I think it's just a really great, important film. And I I just, I, I loved it. I'm going undercover in the Ku Klux Klan. Hello? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? That's right. What can I do you for? Since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews. Mexicans, too. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. And, uh, I, love, I love that film. I wish I put it on my list now. Um, but I'm put to so many I couldn't put on. <laughs> um, so, moving on, Jonathan, what's your number five? My number five is Widows. I am so disappointed with us, with people. Just Again, it's a movie that should have been seen more. It's a movie that we should have championed more. It's a movie that talks about race and class and gender and all, all of these topics in American society while still being about these four women. The performances, the first the performances are, are, are incredible. Every, every, everyone brings their A-game in this movie, but, but Singling out um, Viola Davis she was just ferocious in this. It was ferocious in this film. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki was the huge. Was something I didn't really. It, it was a performance I didn't expect. It, it's well directed by Steve McQueen. Well, leave it to him to actually make still make something that's both commercially viable, but also makes you, that also really gets inside of you and makes you think. And the script by him and uh, Gillian Flynn was was absolutely ter- was terrific. It's definitely one of those movies again you need to seek out and you need to watch because it's much more than what you see on the surface. So okay, number four, Audrey. My number four is Never Look Away, which is a German film about an artist and kind of his development from childhood during World War II in Germany through um, Cold War era Eastern Germany, East Germany, and then um, defecting to West Germany and sort of how he deals with the trauma of his life through art, but also kind of how Germany deals with its trauma because like as much as it was, you know, arguably self-inflicted drama, trauma, it um, was an incredibly traumatic period um, for the country and to kind of come to terms with everything that happened and what you've done and what your neighbors have done and um, what your family members have done is um, incredibly powerful. And there's three amazing performances. Um, it's Tom Schelling, Sebastian Koch, and Paula Beer, who are three of the most like amazing German actors um, working right now. And it's it's like an epic uh, film. It's it's like over three hours long, so you have to kind of commit to it, but it is engaging the entire way through. I don't think I looked at my phone once to like see what time it was, which is very rare for me because I have uh, regrettably a short attention span and and you know usually check, um, but I did not for this. And it got I saw it at TIFF in Toronto, and it got a got like a six minute standing ovation. Um, it's just really 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 good um my uh number four pick is leave no trace i can't really add to what has been already said um everybody's really sort of uh, 
it's a really great film and I, I do think it's a bit of a shame it's not getting more attention um, like discussed I mean Ben Foster what a performance it's just so heartbreaking uh, in moments and, and it's just like simple things that you know the, the sort of interaction between the father and a daughter sort of relationship it's just beautiful and um, moments that's really stood out for me was um, when he wakes up in the tent and he's you know suffering an episode of like post-traumatic stress disorder and that really sort of just stood stood out to me at the, how you know we we need to take more give more attention and care for veterans and stuff and um, I, I thought that was a really sort of heartbreaking moment and it's not made up much of a, a big deal about it it's sort of just touched upon briefly and that's why I, I kind of love about um, the director's work is that you know these these are just sort of honest characters and they seem very real and they're, they're dealing with trauma and, and doing the best that they can to sort of get through it in the world so moving on to Doug what's your number four pick so my number four pick, uh, I've just seen some tweets from Robin, has swept the European Film Awards. Uh, it's just won Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenwriter, Best Actress and Best Editing, and that would be Cold War. So it's, it's, a, it's a love story at, at heart that obviously takes place during the Cold War in the 1950s. Another example this year of a, a black and white cinematography. You know, it's a nice companion piece to Roma. There's there's still so so much beauty to be found in filming something in black and white that it can be just as vivid and just a completely enchanting as something in color. And I I love when films do that. And it's you can tell it's not just filmed in black and white for the sake of it. There's a purpose to it. That that that, that, it, that it's a, complete director's choice wasn't for Roma I would absolutely say that Cold War was going to win best best foreign language film because it it really deserves to it's a very sort of tempestuous love story it's not a nice love story there's a lot of ups and downs more downs and ups probably Joanna Kulig is just fantastic I, I wish that she could she could be part of the best actress conversation for the Oscars as well because she she definitely sort of deserves to, to be there. And, you know, if it wasn't such a crowded year, it's, you know, she would absolutely be in contention. But, yeah, it's just it's just such a uh, – an, another film that will leave you in tears numerous times throughout it. It's it's very, very emotional and very heavy, but yeah, that, that that's the, the, sort of the best parts of cinema. I really like that film. Uh, I'm glad it's on your list. Um, so moving on, Jeremy, what's on your number four? Yeah, I well, I also had leave no trace as as number four. So I, yeah, I guess it's uh, it's been kind of uh, been talked about already. I really just love the intimacy of this film. I love the the relationship between the father and daughter. I think Thomason McKenzie as a young performer. I wish she was kind of getting more mention as well. I I just think that she really she really holds this film together in a lot of ways. Jonathan, what's that your number four? <laughs> Oh, my number four is Eighth Grade, and the mark of a really good uh, film or a coming-of-age film is that you can see you can see how you can see so much of yourself in your experiences. Uh, Elsie Fisher really did kind of a, a bit speak to my own, a little bit to my experiences, experience in middle school and going transitioning into high school. 
like, 8th grade and middle school mostly sucked for me. Uh, I was kind of an outcast. I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. I kept to myself. Uh, so, in all of those aspects, I can just find her because I her, and I just wish I could just go into the screen and just tell her, okay, yes, 8th grade sucks. It fucking sucks, but it does get a little bit better in high school if you just find the right friends and you just ignore all the bullshit that goes on you'll be fine so now it's the uh the last few so audrey what is at your third spot my number three is black klansman I saw it three times in theaters, so I thought it should be my third spot. Um, with different people, to be fair. Like, I went to see it by myself, and then I told my husband, hey, we should go see this movie. And then I told my mom, hey, we should go see this movie. I just really, really loved the um, the way that Spike Lee is able to play with comedy and, like, find, like, little nuggets of humor in, like, very, very unfunny situation. Just kind of, like, the absurdity of life. Um and I really, really admire the the chances he was willing to take, especially at the end with the, um, the finale. Um, and, yeah, I just think Adam Driver and um, Mr. Washington are incredible, and I think that they deserve all the successes that they, they will undoubtedly get for this movie. So my number three is a film from South Korea called Burning. I spoke about this uh, early in the year when there's sort of a trailer released for it, and it did not disappoint. Uh, it's a really good sort of thriller, very sort of slow pace but really builds up to this devastating conclusion which I, I won't ruin but it's really strong performances I, I, I found the film sort of interesting on how it's a commentary about um, you know the the current generation um, in, in Korea and sort of dealing with an unemployment and a class struggle uh, for those who don't know this film it's uh, about a young man called uh, Lee Jong-soo who is a graduate in creative writing uh, comes from sort of a lower working class background and uh, he's in between jobs and he bumps into an old classmate uh, Hae Min who uh, remembers him but he doesn't remember her but they sort of um, spend the night together and she asks him to look after her cat who we never see throughout the movie it's a very mysterious cat while she goes travelling to Africa uh, so he does this and he's sort of fallen for her and uh, every day he goes to the apartment to feed the cat that he never sees Oh, she returns a few months later, and she's brought a sort of she's made a new friend, who's this really wealthy, charming guy uh, called Ben, who is actually um, the Walking Dead's uh, Stephen Yeun, and he's amazing in this film. Uh, ben seems to be like this sort of Gatsby type of character. Um, he's very sort of rich, well off well-educated and very sort of charming and sort of relationship, friendship type of thing going on between the three main characters. And then something happens, and that's all I'm going to say. And then things get very strange and 
so that's my number three. Um, moving on to Doug, what's at your uh, third spot? With this one, it was uh, a film I saw at the Sydney Film Festival back in June and knew pretty much nothing about, and maybe that can be a great thing sometimes, um, and that's Lean on Pete. From from the outside, it just looked like, you know, a sappy story about a teenager and a horse, and, you know, it sounded like something that, di- that Disney would have made back in the 80s, you know, uh, just a sappy road trip kind of film of a, a you know a, a boy and his horse trekking across the, the states and at its heart that's obviously what lean on pete is about but it is a surprisingly touching and amazingly beautiful film that yeah, the performance by charlie Plummer is astonishingly good and I, I it's one of these performances this year that i'm just amazed is not getting any sort of awards notice i think it has appeared occasionally on a few lists here and there in those kind of new performance categories. But to me, it it's probably one of my favourite performances of the year. It's very understated, very low-key, and I, he is definitely someone to watch, and I think he's going to have an amazing career heading forward. It, it It's a surprisingly emotional film for something that doesn't, oh, from the outside, doesn't seem like it's going to have that impact. And it's another one that had me in tears this year uh, for, for both... Uh, positive and and sad reasons. Uh, there are some really uplifting moments in this film, and there are some absolutely devastating moments in this film. Particularly one, which if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's one of those ones that I'm I, I just ch- am championing people to actually seek out sort of the, over this holiday season when you're kind of catching up on things you've missed this year. I feel like Lean on Pete should absolutely be on that list. So. Jeremy, what's at your uh, number three? Spot? Um, so my number three is is Cold War. Uh, I really loved that the the romance in this film. I I, I loved the uh, the black and white photography, the music, as that's already been said. I, I love the fact that this is this is this is sort of like it feels like it's an epic romance that that spans many years. And it's a really small film, though. Like it's 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 only like I think a ninety-minute film, but we 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 kind of get the span of of this this love story uh, that that's I think over twenty years or something like that. I think that speaks a lot to the economy of the film, and it's also like I just love the the glances that the two the two lovers make, like when when they're in a room together, and and I just think it's. It's just a really lovely film that's 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 told very cinematically. And I'm glad to see it on your list as well. Uh, Jonathan, what's your number three pick? My number three pick is the same as Audrey's. It's Black Klansman. Spike Lee has, I, I think it's fair to say this, that Spike Lee has had kind of a downturn somewhere in his career of the last almost decade or so. But this this definitely is it's, it, it is such a blistering and fantastic return to form, and of course the ending of this film is brings it all back to uh, contemporary to contemporary times to just to say that really nothing not a whole lot has changed from from uh, 1972 up until now. It's also extremely funny. It just comes. It comes together rather almost perfectly. There's one scene that I, I again I would like to touch on. It's Harry Belafonte, 
and he's talking about the lynch, the lynching of uh, Jesse Lynch, and he speaks about it in such a powerful way that it just it gets inside. It, it literally gets inside inside you, and it gets inside your head and in your bones, and it kind of leaves a mark on you. Um, great pick. Um, so now here we go. It's it's number two. Uh, Audrey, what's that, your number two spot? My number two spot is Eighth Grade. Um, I find this movie deeply disturbing for two reasons. The first of which is that I am convinced that Bobum found footage of me in high school and used that as his like, inspiration because it's just such a shining testament to that time in your life when you don't even know how to like stand and let your arms hang without it feeling awkward. It's just like... It's amazing how, how real it all feels. She's a different generation than us. She's, She's right not a different generation. Yeah, she is. She's four years younger than us. I mean. Okay, but people who are like four years older than us felt like fucking 50 years old. That's like blatantly not Your true. sister? My sister just sucks. Okay, but like on top of that, she didn't have Twitter in middle school, and we did. That made us different. Kayla, you're not different than us. Well, yeah. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? And the second reason I find it deeply disturbing is the scene in the car that I'm not going to get into, but my heart just Mm. dropped to my feet, and Mm. it's one of the most tense scenes, I think, in film this year, because you're just, oof, yeah. My number two is Cold War. I don't know what else I can really add uh, to what's been said I just think this is such a beautiful film and like Roma there's something I find so uh, stunning about black and white cinematography I just love it and um, there's been some really great films being made this year and with you know black and white photography I will just quickly mention November which is another black and white film uh, again it's just so beautiful to look at and every frame and every still should you know could be in in art gallery I just remember watching it in the cinema and just being blown away by it I was just like wow this is this is what cinema is about when people say that cinema is an art I would say go watch Cold War and then come back and debate it with me uh, Doug what's your number two so my number two is Widows. Now, I, we've obviously touched on this already, but I, I, I am still stumped at this film not getting the awards attention it deserves, particularly with the SAG Ensemble nom. I am oh, yeah. just so angry. It's particularly with this Bohemian Rhapsody nonsense, which, you know, we all know is a one performance film. It's about Rami Malek and that's it. And I'm more than happy for him to be getting the, the attention, but to call that one of the five best ensembles, when you have Widows, which has Viola Davis and Michelle Rodriguez and Elizabeth Debicki and Cynthia Enrivo, Colin Farrell, Brian Tyree Henry, Daniel Kaluuya, Jackie Weaver, Carrie Coon, Robert Duvall, Liam Neeson. I, I just don't understand how that doesn't equal a best ensemble nomination, particularly they, given they are all fantastic, every single one of them. There is not 
a disappointing performance in this film. So over here we have $2 million, 20 Tupperware boxes, each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now over here we have $2 million, 40 Tupperware boxes, each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. We gotta start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. There's not gonna be some cozy reunion. After this job, we're done. We have three days to look and move like a team of men. The best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. And to, to even walk out of this film and say that Viola Davis maybe isn't the best performance, that's, got, that's saying something. Because I would say that Daniel Kaluuya's performance is astonishing. He is just so menacing and so... And, and, and without the use of a lot of dialogue he can he can do that with just a look there's that scene where the two guys are rapping and he's just staring at one of them and it's just like the most terrifying moment of that film uh elizabeth Debicki as well is fantastic in that she completely holds her against viola davis of all people and that in itself is, a, is an astonishing achievement and you know steve mcqueen ha- has done something really remarkable here amazing shot oh, where yes. Colin Farrell gets in the car and the camera stays outside and within moments they go from extreme poverty to this lavish mansion and you see the difference in classes in Chicago that are just blocks away from each other. And if that isn't like a pitch-perfect image of the current state of America, I don't know what else is. Jeremy, number two for you. So my number two, I'm actually not actually sure if it's gotten like a wide release uh, in 2018, but I've gotten, I, 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 it was just a film I stumbled upon uh, while I was, I was at the Calgary Film Festival here, here where I live. And um, it's called Three Faces and it's, uh, it's an Iranian film. Uh, it's directed by uh, Jafar Panahi. But uh, he's he's sort of like a, a, a an infamous director in Iran. Uh, he's uh, he's currently serving twenty years under house arrest mm. for for uh, insulting the Iranian government, I suppose. Um, so he's made like a lot of interesting films since he's um, since his house arrest, where he's been kind of limited in a lot of ways. And Three Faces, I guess they let him out of his house because it's uh, it takes place. Uh, it uh, it mostly takes place in his car, and uh, it's about a um, uh, he he's in the film himself. He plays himself as the filmmaker. He's he's going with this this very famous Iranian actress, Benaz Jafari uh, is her name, and uh, they're trying to find this young girl who left like a video message on her iPhone that where she she tried to ki- where. She, it looks like she has killed herself, like she hung herself. And the reason she, she killed herself is because uh, her parents won't let her attend uh, a drama conservatory in Tehran. It's kind of like this, it starts off as this mystery to find this young girl to see if she actually killed herself or if she, she staged it with her iPhone and stuff. And it kind of like took me by surprise that uh, it's, it, it turns from this one thing, this mystery about this girl, uh, into this uh, into this kind of warm-hearted look at Iranian culture. Um, it's also 
it takes a lot this this look at how women are treated in Iran and how they're uh, continually treated by their family and but there's also like this hopeful message about like uh, about being able to like even though you're a woman and you're in Iran and and there's still a lot of restrictions there it's uh, it, it has like this really beautiful ending shot uh, that 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 just filled me with full of hope. Um, heard of it? I know it was. I think it had its premiere at Cannes. Jonathan, uh, moving on to you. What's that? Your number two. My number two is Suspiria. When I first, <laughs> I, I I thought I was ready to see this movie because I because I, I hadn't seen anything from Luca Guadagnino. Yeah, I hadn't seen Call Me By Your Name or Bigger Splash. So this is again, this is my my first foray into his uh, into into one of his uh, into his filmography. And I'm like, okay, I I know that it's based on Dario Argento's Italian horror from Suspiria. Through all throughout, it does not feel for one minute that one scene's out of place. It doesn't feel like it doesn't drag. The setup is very much like the original she wants to attend she attends this ba- this ballet uh company because it's supposed to be the best in the world she strange things begin to happen when she dances uh she feels as if this place has a hold of her in a sense and it has a hold on other members of this company the the happenings that go on in that ballet are just disturbing and <laughs> oh there are I'll just put it this way you when you hear bone and other things breaking you feel them I mean literally Guad- uh, Luca Guadagnino makes you feel every break every scream for help everything. It is so visceral how he shoots this film, and yet it—it's it, very—it's almost very seductive in a way how he how he frames scenes and the lighting. Oh, by the way, uh, the score, which is done by uh, Radiohead frontman Tom York, is brilliant. I mean, it's so eerie and so disturbing. The third act is—it it, just—I still can't believe what I saw. And because it, it, it's both... It, it is the most disturbing sequence I've seen in a horror film in a long time. It's also the most realized, and it's also the most stunningly shot sequence. It gave me nightmares. I'm just going to say that. Like, I haven't had... Really, it's been like a crazy year for horror films, and there have been some really good ones. And, uh, yeah, Suspiria is great, and I'm glad to see it on on your list so Audrey let's get your number one so my number one is the favorite um not to promote myself but I did write a piece on filmonomy about uh, (laughs) the favorite my favorite and um I just need to say that I'm so proud of these characters and these women and how they're doing what they need to do to survive and um just the the levels and ways that they are interacting with each other and these these incredibly female driven relationships and the give and take between the characters and the nuance is incredible and 
um, you know, brought to life by three amazing actresses. And, uh, you know, Nicholas Holt is also really great in this. He doesn't get mentioned as much, but he's really good. And um, I just, you know, I, I can't say enough about how refreshing that is um, to have this kind of uh, political maneuvering and, and power plays and um, and and everything like that um, set entirely amongst women and to have it set in a historical you know period is even more incredible but it's you know it's true to life in this court you know Queen Anne is the ruler and for better or worse you kind of have to win her over and it's it's so interesting to see the dynamic shift when it's a you know it's a female driven um, court and all of the men are kind of forced into these roles where they're you know having to make alliances with with these women who have suddenly become incredibly powerful just because they have the queen's ear and um, how that affects them and how you know like um, the parliament plays out when. They, they they have no real connection to their ruler because they are they are kept out exclusively because of their gender. And it's just fascinating. It works on every single level and I love it to death. It's um you know, a movie that feels like tailor made for me. It has all of my interests. So I just love it. I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? You look like a badger. Oh. Are you going to cry? Really? Well, what do you think you look like? Badger. Do you really think you can meet the Russian delegation looking like that? No. I will manage it. Go back to your rooms. Thank you. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me! Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes! Okay, so moving on to my uh, number one. Uh, I'm going with Shoplifters. Um, I don't know what else I can really say about this film. I need to write about it and I will get around to it. I just love this film so much. And just moments in it where I just... It just got to me in such a way. And... Uh, the the uh, film director um, Hiro Kazu Koroda, I hope I say that right. Uh, he directed one of my all-time favorite films, which is Nobody Knows. And um, Shoplifters is actually better than Nobody Knows. Um, so uh, it's it's now up there in one of my all-time top favorite films. Um, so. I love it. It's so good. It's so good. And um, I, I really want to see more of his work as well. So I'm definitely going to try and get around to that. Um, so, Doug, what's your number one? Well, yeah, I, I wanted to be different. I wanted to do something strange and unusual. And, and you know, th- this is a film that's going to be on the number one spot of a lot of a lot of lists. And that's Roma. 
I I watched it again now that it's on Netflix. I saw it a couple of months ago in a cinema, which was a completely different experience. But I don't want to make people feel bad because I know it's it wasn't accessible for everyone to see in a cinema. But and it, why, I watched it as soon as it went on Netflix because I wanted to see if it still had the power it did in a cinema. And I'm so thankful that it does because... It, it is. I know this word gets thrown around so often, but it's a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. It's so meticulously created by uh, Kuron. Every single shot in this film is just a work of art. He just has this incredible eye, and the fact that he's also the one, you know, behind the camera with the cinematography makes this such a a, a very personal piece. The narrative as well is obviously inspired by his childhood, and he clearly was very, very Im- impacted and influenced by his nanny, and he wanted to make a film that, you know, put put that character at the forefront because that's a character that's usually in the background of, of, of films. It's not someone that we usually follow and get to know and see their lives, and he's obviously made a real concerted effort that he wanted to highlight someone who obviously meant a lot to him and he he obviously feels like deserves attention and deserves credit and deserves uh you know a, a film about them and that that that's what makes it so sort of different um this isn't you know the usual sort of character that we follow and he finds beauty in places where you know you don't expect beauty to come from he's setting this in mexico city which you know it's not it's it's not in a great a great time period it's not it's not you know it's in some lavish location this is this is real life and this is this is his childhood and it, it, it's a great character study in that what what we get to follow with uh the lead character in cleo is in the hands of an an act actress who has never acted before as well and she doesn't have a lot of dialogue but but everything that she says with her face and you you understand her every emotion then that the finale at the beach it's just it it it's such a a wonderful way to 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 end things and i i can't say enough good things about this he he has crafted something that that really i i have to say is a work of art Perfect pick. I love it. Um, so, Jeremy, what's your number one film? Um, so, my number one film is technically a 2018 film, although I guess it was made about 40 years ago. Uh, <laughs> the, it's um, The Other Side of the Wind, um, which is uh, the, the long-lost Orson Welles film that he made uh, back in, uh, I think, between 1970 and 1975. It's uh, it, again. It's it's another film that 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 Netflix released actually. So, admittedly, I don't think that this is actually a perfect film. But I, I guess I'm putting it as my number one as 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 sort of like my favorite film, or it's the film that I've I've thought about the most after I've watched it. Um, I've watched it. I've seen it twice now, and I, I've I've like both times. Like the second time I watched it, I, I picked like there's like so much there's so much. Impacted, packed, impacted in it that um, that that you 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 miss some some things after your first time watching it. I feel and granted, it's it's a very rough film. Like Orson Welles, I think only got to edit partially part part of it, and then it was it was put together by by the people who restored it. Which one of the producers is Frank Marshall, uh, who actually worked on the film originally uh, back in the seventies. 
Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who has a role in the film, uh, also worked on it as well. Uh, and uh, I just found that this just was a really fascinating uh, look at filmmaking itself, uh, at the world of film, at kind of the new Hollywood, uh, the way like the 1970s uh, film filmmakers were like, like kind of the new film criticisms that were going in. Like Wells takes a lot of pot shots at at at, at people like um, Pauline Kael, who is sort of like a big. Uh, who's kind of like a big rival with with Wells at the time? There's sort of like a character in it that that sort of resembles Pauline Kale, and it's it's almost like a cynical film about like the idea of 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 putting a camera to a face and what that does to the psyche. Like when when someone is constantly filmed over and over again, and how it sort of loses your your sense of humanity. And like, there's cameras all over this film. It's about it's about like an aging filmmaker played by John Huston, who is last. It, it, we were told at the beginning of the film, uh, this is his last day uh, before he dies. And um, and and there's like constant, like he has constant cameras following him around. He's also working on a film at the time, which is also which is called The Other Side of the Wind. I just felt that this was just a, a really fascinating film about like what filmmaking really does. And it, it kind of actually had me question like if like, like the, 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 the morality of, of filming a person and showing them on screen. Like I, I was actually mixed with all these feelings after I watched the film. So I the, the, I know it's not perfect. It's very fragmented. It's very rough around the edges. In a way, I kind of like that. That it's it's not a perfect film because none of Orson Welles's films are perfect, other than Citizen Kane, because he always he was always a, a filmmaker that that had to struggle to to get his films made and to get them shown the way he wanted them to be shown. So I, I just think that it's it's a really fascinating movie, and and I'm glad that it's out on Netflix that we have it, that we can see it, and, and that it's like a testament to who Orson Welles was, like good or bad or, or whatever you felt about him. He was, he was like an artist, and, and I, I, just, I, just, I just love that this film is here and we can see it now. So, Yeah, we're, we're lucky to, to finally get a chance to see it. And the documentary that was also sort of released at the same time. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Really, really mm, good. Mm. And very That's right. fascinating and, and uh, helps to sort of give the, the film a, a nice companion piece to go alongside it. Yeah. So, last but not least, Jonathan, what is it at your number one? Ah, my number one, this one I saw the, earlier this summer. Probably the, the boldest film I've seen this year. It, it might just be one of the funniest, one of the best satirical films I've I've ever seen. It is Sorry to Bother You. And this is from writer, from debut writer-director Boots Riley. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you're pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody get hurt. Oh, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why is it helping me out? Well, you don't 
talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? How Boots frames this is that this is this is set in an alternate real an alternate reality um, science fiction reality. Uh, there's a young man gets a job as a telemarketer, and as he quickly finds out, he has what what uh, Danny Glover calls a white voice. He develops a white voice. Which is the white voice is basically he's a black man who sounds like a black man, but he also can mimic what we what we would expect a white person sound sounds like, and he quickly rises through the ranks of to become a power caller or a power salesman. He gets uh, promoted to the big to the big time. For uh, the company, <laughs> his girlfriend uh, is an artist of sorts, and one of her one of her traits is that she has these earrings that have messages on them. So he, be- anyway, uh, he becomes this power caller. Uh, he starts kind of driving a wedge between his friends and his girlfriend uh, as. The more and more money he racks up, and the more uh, the more uh, the more calls he makes, you know, selling crap, selling this junk, uh, and then he gets the ear of of a billionaire who is played by Arm by Army Hammer. Yeah, he, he he invites him to a party because he has been this impressed by his worth his work ethic at, at Regal View, and this is where the movie. Which is already feels very absurd and it's very politically kind of. It, it makes these comment. It, it's a commentary on exploitation of workers and a society that doesn't really seem to give a shit. This movie goes completely, absolutely, one hundred percent bonkers, batshit crazy off the rails. If I told you what goes on, you would not believe me, and you'd have gone nuts. And like really, this is where this film goes. Seriously, I'm not gonna see it. But no, it. This is a movie that is so original and so out. It, it's original. It's outrageous. It's bold. It, it's this vision of this future that this almost feels like a horror film if it wasn't so goddamn funny. Uh, great stuff, guys. I'm really impressed. And the the list up. We've had we've had some really great films and some films that are you know uh, haven't been seen by many people and hopefully we will um, be able to promote them and get them the attention that they deserve. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today and I really appreciate it and thanks very much for everyone who's listened. <laughs> Będę kochać póki żyję